Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and online at gtownradio.com. This is What Do You Know About That? A radio show about anything and everything happening in our community, our city, and our world. Here are your hosts, Eric Gershnow and Mary Angela Saavedra. Well, how's it going, Mary Angela? Hello, Eric. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. How was your Halloween? It was good. Very festive. Did some fun events at Attic Brewing. That was really, really nice. Did some costume karaoke one night and then put on a different costume for the West Philadelphia Orchestra the next night. It was good. Friday night at Attic and then Saturday at Attic. Yes. They had good events and they good drink good specials. <laughs> it was nice. Yeah, no, West Philly Orchestra was great. Uh, would love to get those guys on the show. Yeah, we should do that. And also, if any of you see them playing anywhere, you should try and catch them because it's a good time. A lot of fun. A lot of fun, for sure. No doubt. But now we're in November. Holy cow, it's second week in November already. The next time we air, it's going to be Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Right, the holidays are just going to come flying by. Unbelievable. Hope everybody's having a great fall because it's almost over. It's ridiculous. Halloween's over. And yeah. now well, let's just fast forward through Thanksgiving. It's Christmas. Yeah. Let's let's chat about what the chatter is about. <laughs> Please. In the neighborhood. All right. So um, some interesting artistic endeavors happening in our neighborhood. There is a woman in East Germantown who is looking to collect insure caps. So if any of you all are uh, insure drinkers... Please save your caps because she is doing a mosaic um, using Insure Drink Caps. So uh, you can find her information on the Nextdoor app. Her name is Betsy, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Touch, maybe, T-E-U-T-S-C-H. So you can find her on the Nextdoor app and she would like you to message her there and donate your Insure Caps. She's doing an arts mosaic. And, you know, insure caps are kind of large and they're blue rimmed and they're silver in the middle. So it's some kind of mosaic that involves that combination. You remember um, my former roommate, Emily, her mom used to collect um, bottle caps from like soda bottles and I would do mosaics. Know that. Oh, yes. There's a couple schools downtown in like South Philly ish area, maybe the Italian market area that have installations of Emily's mom's. That were, that oh, were the, wow. yeah, where the kids collected bottle caps of all kinds. She would do two liter bottles or she would do like, like metal bottle caps and stuff like that. And so it's, it's just an art form. And this particular lady, Betsy is, um, collecting insure caps to make something awesome. I wish I drank insure. I'd be giving them to her. You could start. Well, I could also talk to the people at my center and say, Hey, y'all start bringing in your insure caps. I'm collecting them for this lady. Another announcement that's on next door right now is there was this really great jogging stroller. You've seen them, right? Where you put the baby in the stroller and you can like jog behind it. Three wheeler ones, right? It's got the the single wheel in the front. Yep. Got it. Yeah. And it's got like shocks on it. So the baby isn't jostled all over the place while you're (laughs) jogging. A sports stroller. Right. Correct. It's a sports stroller. Well, apparently you can't take those into... Carpenter's Woods very well to hike, obviously, because it's uneven and it's difficult. And this particular family left their stroller at the entrance 
to Carpenter's Woods and then went into the woods to hike. And when they came back, the stroller was why, gone. Why would they leave the stroller That there? was my thought. It's Philadelphia. Like, I know it Five seems... Five-finger discount. Yeah, I was like, I know it seems like the wilderness, but you're actually just going into the woods that cut in the middle of the city. And maybe don't leave your $500 stroller outside Carpenter's Woods because now someone's jogging around the neighborhood with their baby. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got a go. brand new sports stroller, <laughs> brand new sports stroller. So yeah, just like a word to the wise. If you're going to go hiking, maybe leave the jogging stroller at home. It stinks because that's kind of what the, the comment thread is on here. A lot of people. Every, were, yeah. Everyone's probably saying the same thing. Right. The, the funny thing was the first comment was more about, oh my gosh, it, no, no, no. They had the baby. It's the stroller that went missing. Maybe it was just because of the way the woman worded it, where she's like, have you seen this stroller? And the picture she showed is, of course, the picture of the stroller with her baby in it. So yeah. And then a lot of people are like, oh, I hope you get it back. Yes. Word to the wise. If something is precious to you and you can't take it with you wherever you're going in the city, leave it at home. Yeah. Um, Pumpkins. So what do you do with your pumpkins when they start to turn, you know, when they've been outside for too long, they're getting kind of gross. Several different people in the neighborhood groups here are asking that you take them and actually throw them into the woods, like into Carpenter's Woods and into like the Wissahickon because deer and squirrels and chipmunks and all kinds of things will eat them. Right. And that's a really good way to recycle right to dispose of them also you're helping to feed the wildlife also you're not putting them in your some people would question you don't want to feed the wildlife granted it's not like right well and you're also not waiting there for the wildlife to come to you you're not holding the pumpkin you're throwing the pumpkin in the woods and you're walking away like this isn't like come here deer eat out of my hand i'm just gonna hurl my pumpkins into this part of the woods and animals will eat it because when you put pumpkins in your trash as you mentioned like throw them away put them in trash can right we're gonna have they're gonna bring pests correct and they're gonna smell real unpleasant well that too they get like mushy and then there's like pumpkin juices all dripping down in your trash can (laughs) it's just you know it's gross Um, but if you got a compost just compost well of course but not everybody has a compost not everyone has a compost right so this person on the next door app said that she would gladly take the pumpkins to the wildlife for you. So if you wanted to just drop them off on her porch, you're rotting pumpkins. That sounds like an invitation for a whole lot of mess. I mean, she said it and she listed her address here, which I won't say on the air, but she was like, drop off your pumpkins. I'm going to go take a big pile of pumpkins too. I mean, you might get more pumpkins than you bargained for. Well, we'll see. I'm going to follow this for the next couple of days because I really do want to know, is she going to get more pumpkins? Or maybe there's some like underground mafia that's making money over fist from rotting pumpkins. Yeah, I don't know. Probably not. But the comment thread on here, which is about 35 comments deep right now, is actually really positive. People are like thanking her for being willing to do that. Also, what a great idea. Yes, let's feed the squirrels and the deer. Um, (laughs) Somebody else said, I'm on my way over with three pumpkins. I mean, people think it's pretty great. You know, thank you. You're so kind to take care of this. This is wonderful. It's genuine positivity. And it's, you know, caring for the, the wildlife in our area. I thought it was really sweet. So then... On a sadder note, after the the talking of feeding animals, there's more poisoning, pet illness, death situation going on right now. And so I'm wondering, 
I mean, we talked about the mothballs last time, and I'm wondering if it's something similar. But basically, this person posted today for um, pet owners to be aware because two of her neighbor's pets have recently died from bleeding out. Ooh. Right. I don't know what that means or how that is, but like, that's just what it says. It says one moment, fine. Next moment, dying and dead. One was a beloved house cat that was allowed in his yard and carried in a dead chipmunk and then later threw up blood and soon after died, which leads them to believe that the chipmunk itself was poisoned. So the cat didn't eat anything, but the cat ate the poisoned chipmunk and got sick and died. The same thing happened to a dog. And they don't know what the dog ate. The dog had just been outside and same thing, just started throwing up one second and then that was it. So they're just asking you to like check your yards for dead or dying squirrels or chipmunks. If you know of anyone in the area who has put out rodent bait, kindly ask them to remove it. The hawks, owls and fox eat the rodents and then they will most likely die as well. Most cats and dogs will also be able to easily catch or pick up a dying or dead squirrel or chipmunk in their yard and then they'll get sick. Um, And this was the people that have been observing this are between like East Evergreen and Germantown to Stenton and Gravers. So all around in that area. So just a heads up. Hmm. And what's interesting is that's also very similarly close to that area where the mothballs were found. So I'm really wondering, like, was that chipmunks and squirrels that got into the mothballs and then took them a minute and now these poor cats and dogs. So as we, we mentioned last time, don't build an investigation time. around this. <laughs> it's just something to be aware of. Stuff happens, you know, like protect your pets. I mean, people put out be stuff careful. that they're probably not supposed to all the time. So they do. So sorry to end on a Debbie Downer note, but that's, that's what's going on in our neighborhood. So what's our topic for today, Mary Angela? I am glad you asked. Broadly, we could say we're talking about sports in America, but that's, it's kind of broad. Um, Sports in America. (laughs) I think if I had to narrow it down to specifically, I would like to talk about corruption in sports in America. Because see, I'm not really into sports, not to say that we are not appreciative of the value that sports bring and the entertainment industry and all that. Like I said, we're, we're casual sports watchers. So we watch things special like the Olympics. And if it's a playoff game, I watched some Eagles game. I saw them in the Super Bowl. I watched that. I mean, you had to watch the <laughs> Eagles game when they go to the Super Bowl. But not just then. There have been other times in my life where I have watched football by choice. <laughs> <laughs> Not, not because I was held down and forced to watch football. Yeah. Well, I have to say it was really impressive the time we got to see the Army-Navy game. Yes. Down in South Philly. Right. So Mary Angela's uncle at the time was a huge tailgater. And when he would come to the games, he would go all out. He had a trailer, pop-up tent. Chandelier. A chandelier. <laughs> yes, that would hang in the center of the tent. Then he had just about every sort of device that you could use to cook something yep, at the ready. Deep fryer, grill, yeah, all that. But then we sat on the sideline. We were like right there. 50-yard line, front row. Yeah, That's it was we quite amazing. And then I didn't realize how much ceremony takes place during the Army-Navy game. 
you've got a play and then there'll be like 15 minutes of honoring people who've served. The vice president at the time. That's just, right. Uh, what year was this? I think this it was, was... Two, 2012. I think it was 2012. Yeah. That's when we is... went. The vice president, Joe Biden, um, sat three rows behind us. <laughs> we had better seats than the vice president, who, if you don't know, the vice president will go to the Army Navy game and will switch sides. We'll start on the Army side and then cross the field and go to the Navy side. So he came right across the field, came right up the stairs, like literally yeah, three walked seats. walked right past us. Yep, three seats to the left Ooh. of us and then went back two rows and sat behind us for Star the second Trek. half of the game. <laughs> We're like, oh my God, we have better seats than the vice president of the United States. What is going on right now? Uh, it was pretty cool. And Navy won. Yay. It was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> but not to sidetrack. Right, right. Usually when you hear about sports or tune in on the news, if it's not a team doing really well or some amazing championship or something, it's because something bad has happened. Some wah, kind wah. of right, some kind of corruption has gone on. Sports somebody's, controversy. Yeah. Somebody's done something bad. And I just kind of wanted to talk about it because as I was kind of Looking into it, this all kind of started with this docu-series that is on Netflix right now. It's called Bad Sport. And it just kind of got me thinking about what motivates people to cheat at sports. There's so much money in sports. You have to just assume yes. wherever there's lots of money, there's yes. probably lots of corruption. Right. So that's the problem. I mean, that's not new, right? It's... You could go back to, what was it, the the... They made a movie about it. The Yankees, right? No, they I'm going to actually talk about that. Okay. <laughs> this is how much you know about sport. What do you know about that? It was the White Sox. The Chicago White Sox was the 1919 World Series. And the eight men on that team threw the World Series because they were in cahoots with a bunch of gangsters who were going to make a bunch of money if they threw the game. And it boiled down to the fact that at the time, the owners of that particular franchise, even in of sort of how Major League Baseball was done at the time, uh, just weren't paying them. Like they just really weren't paying them a living wage. And they were like, we're tired of this. They were seeing, you know, the owners live large. And one of them was like, well, I know a guy and here's what we can do. And that's what happened. They, of course, got caught. And it was a big deal because we're talking about the equivalent of $284,000 in today's money. So that was how it's much. Still not a lot of money. Yeah, it it's not, but that's how much the league leader made. And yeah, it was twenty thousand dollars at the time. You're traveling and you've got a family to support. These particular players were only paid six thousand dollars a piece by the White Sox, which is the equivalent of about eighty six k today as a salary. And for a major league player, that's hard. That's not much, and you can't just quit and go off and choose to go to another team, there's contracts, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you do that, then you can't play for somebody else. It's like a big deal. So they cheated. And of course they got caught and it was bad news. It's a stigma that they wore for a long time. And they made a movie about it. They did. Eight, Eight Men Out is the movie. It's got John Cusack in it. <laughs> you were right. It is a movie. Uh, what is interesting is that in 2004, the White Sox won the World Series and it was considered breaking the curse. Because they had basically been cursed since that series in 1919 that they would never win a World Series again. That was supposedly the the curse. And so it was a big deal when the White Sox won in 2004 because they, they quote unquote, broke the curse, mm -hmm. um, which was crazy. But again, over money, right? Another big scandal 
we know about, it's always the sex scandals. You hear about Sandusky from Penn State. It was a big deal because this guy had such a massive reputation as yep. a coach. He was the perpetrator of said sexual abuse. There was another guy. Sandusky oh, was the perpetrator. Paterno, right. So Paterno yeah. was the one who failed to sort of identify that it was under Paterno's nose. Sandusky right. was the one who did it. Because Paterno was fired for failing to notify the authorities when he was told that Sandusky had been seen molesting a boy. Yeah. So the problem is Sandusky was the one responsible. Paterno was the one who was just like, I'm going to turn a blind eye. It happened under under his nose. It's crazy when you think about it. You hear all these molestation stories. I mean, you talked about the Olympics, for example. Who was the... the yep, the, gymnastics. The, yeah. Yep. He was the physician who... Yep use that opportunity to molest so many women for like 20 years. Yeah. It's bananas. So, so we know about that. It's sad and it's messed up that that happens. Thanks to the Me Too movement, we're not tolerating that anymore, but there's no Me Too movement for money-driven cheating. That kind of stuff happens. And this docuseries that I watched, Bad Sport, really does focus in on what people will do for money and how no sport is really immune. So the sport of horse showing, when you ride a horse and you jump over all the hoops and everything, right? Mm -hmm. This is a sport that is clearly for the upper class. It's costly to, to show a horse. It's like dog shows, I think. Yeah. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. Horses are really, really expensive. Any sport where you have like a panel of judges where the winner is just subject to the judge's opinion. Right. How do you get to become a judge? Well, and not exactly like that. So you're not just showing based on like how good your horse looks. Your horse has to be able to jump. Right. And jump different heights. It's a performance piece. Right, exactly. And these people spend their lives and their livelihood. Now, mind you, these people usually come from tons of money. People are related to the Budweiser's, the originals. It's those kind of families, old money, Americans. Sir Budweiser. (laughs) You know what I mean? But- Duke of Budweiser. For me to find out that there was corruption over money, people who I consider don't need the money. You know what I mean? Where I'm just like, you guys have money. If your horse isn't performing, go get another horse. You have the money. What? Why do you need money? Like, I don't understand why this is the case. But what was happening was there was a guy who had been basically- it's always a guy. It always is. It's that guy. Had been working- over his career, had since he was a teenager, since he was 16, working with horses. His name is Tommy Burns. Tommy Burns was the horse hitman. And he was just like a working class kid. The horse hitman. Yeah. Is that like the nickname that he well, that's was what given the, from this whole thing? <laughs> yes, actually, it was. <laughs> because he would, it's really sad, he would electrocute the horses. What? Yes. Oh, yeah. electrocuted Mr. Ed. Yep. Because, well, because there is um, a thing that can happen to horses, which I never knew, but it's called colic. And it's when their like intestines get all jumbled up and and then they can't digest stuff and then they die. And so if you electrocute a horse and it looks like colic, colic, so it's not, it doesn't look like, you know, somebody killed a horse. So like, I mean... How, did, how does one go about doing that? Does he just have like a taser in his back pocket and he waits till the jockey's head's turned and goes, Zzz. Nope. It's actually much more complicated than that. 
It's a device basically where one end has the plug that you plug into a light socket. The other end is split with the positive and negative charges. You put one on the horse's ear and you put one basically behind the horse's testicles right near his butt. And then you plug it into the wall. What? It's awful. It's awful. Sorry. Maybe we should have a trigger warning (laughs) that this is about horse harm. But we're it, it was terrible. And the problem was, is that these rich people were like, great, if you do this to my horse, I can collect the insurance money because it doesn't look like anything happened beyond that it died of natural causes. Wow. And they would collect insurance. And what's even worse is that the better a horse did, so the better a horse performed, like if it was a, a good competition horse, then... The more, the more they could get from insurance by killing it. Correct. Because the insurance then goes up on that Gosh, horse. That's so messed up. Isn't it? And and this is how little of so, so animals where was, they thought. Where specifically like, was this going on? Where did this guy reside? So he would travel around because the horse circuit is pretty big. It's mostly California, but it's, it's also Florida. It's also Texas. I mean, it's it's kind of all over. And it's so this guy's traveling around zapping horses. So clearly he's got to be approaching people, making deals. No, that's what's messed up is he did it for a, a person that he knew, a person he had worked for on their farm right earlier when he was younger. Right. That was that was the first person that he did it for. And then that person told somebody who told somebody oh, who wow. told somebody so he, he just kind of built a reputation by word of mouth. Yep. So, hey, then, you know, I wonder how one to go goes about discovering something like that. Hey, you know, if I hook up an electrode to a horse's ear and then the other one to. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. Wow. I, it's awful. That's crazy. But yeah, but it's even more awful that these people, instead of being like, well, maybe I'll go let this horse that has worked its butt off for me in the competition circuit for X number of years, go live a happy life on a farm for the rest of its retirement. <laughs> instead, they're like, nah, you know what I need is I need the $200,000 right. insurance it's payout. Off. It's going to make money. But they made money when they were competing and the sponsorships they had, right? Because sports are sponsored, right? You wear the logo of the company that's sponsoring you when you compete. Mm-hmm. They just wonder, didn't need it. I, I wonder, it's frustrating. Well, you know how like, there's, there's certain industries that tend to maybe sponsor certain types of events. I wonder what sort of sponsors you get within the horse industry. I mean, because I'm pretty sure like Elmer's Glue is not going to be sponsoring. <laughs> no, no, it's beer. It's 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 Coors and Budweiser wow. and it's other equestrian companies, you know, that handle saddles and, right. you know, oh, um, makes sense. Totally. You know, yep. I don't yep. know yep. who the, the, the equivalent of John Deere is for the horse industry that like, you know, makes the trailers, but that kind of stuff. Those those are the companies. Jim Spurs. Yeah. yeah I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I clearly don't know about that. But yeah, that was that was the one one of them that really stuck out to me where I was like, there is corruption that's, in horse showing. That's, like, that's unbelievable and, to me. Unbelievable. Right. And, and the worst part is because, right, the horses can't talk. You, yeah. you don't know what's going on. I can, I can see why they're probably even in, in, in other say animal based sports where there there could be similar types of corruption. Well, in some cases, the rider, so the the person involved in riding that horse, the person with the closest relationship to that horse, mm-hmm. didn't know what was happening. Wow. And thought, but you know, that that the rider usually rarely owns the horse, right? right. The rider they're, they're, they're works just... for the person who owns the horse. Exactly. And they interviewed one a, a woman who was a rider who was just completely brokenhearted. And when she found out what had happened, 
it was dreadful. Now, the way he got caught was really karma coming around because the whole thing blew up and it came out when he was hired to take out a horse that he couldn't do the electrocution because this horse had already been treated for colic before and had had a surgery. So the chances of this horse dying of colic again were basically impossible because this horse had already been treated for it and survived. So they were like, you've got to do something else. We need you to break its leg. And this guy who had worked on farms and worked with horses his whole life was like, I'm not breaking a horse's leg. You'll electrocute a horse, but you won't break a horse's leg. Like, you I don't, mean, you don't want to hurt like the horse. It involves a lot more it does. effort and probably. And it's awful to watch, I'm sure. But yeah. yeah, I mean, either way, they're both awful. But anyway, he had a, I don't know, moment of conscience. So he had a friend do it. And the friend was like, cool, I'll do it but you have to drive me. I'm not going to go there alone. You have to to be there, but I'll I'll do the work. Well, when they did it, of course, it's not a quiet activity and it's not something that where you can just like slip up and be unnoticed. And I'm not really sure because the documentary is kind of gray on the on what exactly happened that got the authorities there so quickly, but somehow before they had even left the premises, cops were showing up. And I think that maybe somebody saw them pulling up or somebody saw them, you know, I mean, they didn't park like right next to where they were doing it, but they, yeah, climbed, they climbed the it's fence. It's hard to be inconspicuous and, if yeah. you're going to, you know, break a horse's leg. In someone's private barn yeah. on their property. So, yeah, somebody called the police because by the time they were fleeing the barn, running to their car, there were like cops showing up. Were and, they successful, though? I mean, they were successful in breaking the horse's leg. And they were successful in getting to their car and starting to drive off. But by the time they got to the road with their car, then there was cops coming toward the property and saw them fleeing and turned around and followed them. And so, yeah, they were arrested and they both went to jail. And that's when this whole group of people that were doing this all sort of it blew up. And, right. And it was, like they, I'm sure, grilled him and then just started uncovering the whole scam. Yeah, it was it was crazy. So, so no sport. My point here is that no sport is safe from corruption, including another sport that I really love that seems completely benign, and that's figure skating. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Nancy Kerrigan, Tony no, Harding. <laughs> no, that's different. That wasn't over money, right? That was right. that was a a poor girl who had felt passed over her whole life and just wanted to win at all costs. There was no money involved in that. But there I mean, were legs that were broken. There were legs that were broken. We all know about that one. Um, and that was shocking unto itself. But in 2002, when the Winter Olympics were in Salt Lake City, there was a huge controversy that blew up. The Canadian pairs skaters, Jamie Soleil and David Pelletier are their names. Jamie Soleil and David Pelletier were the Canadian pair skating team at the 2002 Salt Lake City Olympics. And they were on fire. They were winning everything leading up to the Olympics. Technically great competitors and, you know, won a bunch of things, won the worlds, won all kinds of stuff. So they go to the Olympics and they skate. And the big rivalry, if you don't know, the Russians always win pairs figure skating yeah the, those those drones are tight always and they're always the ones to beat and we never beat them just doesn't happen the u.s had a, an olympic pair couple but they weren't in the final so 
it's to the Canadians. So we're like, come on, Canada. This would be great. You guys are awesome. There's and, no and way. And you're so nice. <laughs> right. Technically, you're amazing. If anyone's going to beat the, the Russians, it's going to be you guys, Canadians. It Bring it home. So America kind of adopted this team. This is our team. Um, we're we're going to get behind them. And they even picked a very American song to skate to for their final skate, which was the theme from Love Story. It's Ryan O'Neill. I don't know who the other person in that movie is. It's a movie from the 70s. It's very iconic. It's an American love story. Anyway, they knew how to play us and get us behind them, which was great. And when they skated, they skated flawlessly. They hit every jump perfectly. The Russians skated and they had a couple missteps. Lands of their jumps were were wobbly and not great. In one of them, he didn't throw her far enough. And when she landed, she leaned down and touched the ice with her hand because she lost balance when she landed. Those are big mistakes that cost you technical merit. Mm -hmm. So when the scoring came down, they showed the technical marks. And it's true, the Russians had lower technical marks than the Canadians. Canadians had much higher. And then they showed the artistic marks. And the artistic marks were very close. They were, they were really like, we're talking like a fraction of a point difference in a couple of them, but for the most part across the board, they were almost identical. Mm -hmm. But then there's a third scoring line where each judge ranks which place they want each pair to be in first, second, or third. And four judges picked first place for the Canadians and second place for the Russians. Four judges picked First place for the Russians, second place for the Canadians. And it came down to the French judge to choose. So based on what she thought, where she put them, would decide who got the gold medal. And let me guess, Boris and Natasha are hiding behind her with a gun to her back. (laughs) Yeah, she picked the Russians. And it was crazy because the audience booed. So the Russians are standing there waving and all excited. And the audience is boggled and freaking out and booing them. And the problem with figure skating is, as you mentioned, it's judges and their taste. So at first glance, you can look at this and go, well, that French judge just thought that they were more artistically pleasing and polished, or maybe they thought they were more, you know, for whatever reason she felt. For my own health and safety, (laughs) I thought the Russians performed better. (laughs) Right. So the next day, though, she makes a phone call and tells a reporter that she was coerced and basically threatened and told that she needed to vote this way. Mm-hmm. And now the Canadians are contesting it, which immediately this judge goes back on. I never said that. I didn't say this. I don't know what you're talking about. I just thought they were better. So I voted this way. Like, this is what it is. Then, yeah, because she probably got a, a phone call after. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of back and forth like this goes on. They can't kind of get to the bottom of it. They're not really sure what's happening. The medal ceremony happens, of course, after they skate, because that's how it happens. You get your medal like right afterwards. And there are these Canadians who are just standing there trying to have a brave face on, but they're clearly crying. They're not happy about it. The audience Mm -hmm. is still kind of like, what is going on? And now they're contesting all this stuff. And in this process, they find that this French judge suddenly had more money in her bank account. Mm -hmm. They had found enough evidence to believe that something had happened and that it seemed really weird the way it went down based on the technical marks, right? And the artistic marks that 
technically the Canadian team should have won gold if you just looked at those scores and took mm-hmm. out this whole first, second, and third. And in the end, they awarded a double gold. Oh, wow. So the Canadians got the gold medal after the fact. All the Russians are like, you guys are sore losers. They ended up having to share the gold medal with the Russian team. So there officially is no silver medalist in Paris figure skating for the 2002 Winter Olympics. But that must have pissed the Russians off. I am so sure. Because in this documentary, they interviewed the female skater. Her and they interviewed also her coach. And her coach was like, we were just better. They're just sore losers. My theory is that they threatened that French judge. And then when she went and was worried and told somebody and that came out, right, then they paid her to be quiet, to change her story mm-hmm. because she went back on it and there was money involved. I think in in my mind, that's what So happened. my next question is, they make a movie about it? No, they haven't, right? But I'm hoping maybe because of this documentary, like maybe they will. Maybe that's coming next. That would be... Amazing. (laughs) People love a good sports scandal movie. I would, I would love it. And then the other one that I thought was really weird is another one that you just don't think of being corruptible, a sport you just wouldn't think was going to go down that road. sports. Yeah. It it really kind of blows my mind. Racing, not necessarily NASCAR, but it's a race. Grand Prix. Yeah. Couldn't remember what it was called. Yes. Grand Prix racing, Grand Prix racing. So there was a Grand Prix racer named Randy Lanier. Mm-hmm. He was a Florida racer and he always loved going fast, loved driving fast cars, but he was totally working class, did not have the money to get involved in the wide world of Grand Prix racing. But that did not stop him. He was like, I really want to do this. I'm going to try out and get in mm-hmm. on a team, which he did. And people were like, wow, you're really talented, young kid. You can really go far. The problem is not being of that world. He, of course, did not uh, gel well with the people. Yeah, I feel like that culture is more about image than, say, technique, perhaps. There's um, sort of a cult of personality that goes along with that whole thing. But please continue. Yes, you're not wrong about that. That's absolutely true. Another thing is, is that these car clubs are sponsored and run by companies like Lamborghini and Audi and, you know, Mercedes. And so then the car owners, those guys that make the money and own the cars and pay the drivers. And I'm thinking they're probably going to back a driver who's got some kind of pedigree, like some hot Italian young model to get behind the wheel because they look pretty in a Lamborghini. Yes. And this... Grand Prix racing is predominantly a European sport. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely where it got started. I don't know if you know this, Philadelphia, but there's a museum in South Philly where they have all these kind of Grand Prix cars from the 50s and the 60s. It's actually called the Simeon Foundation Automotive Museum. It is on Norwich Drive in South Philadelphia. And it's really cool because you can have events there, but also you can go, you know, Monday through Friday during normal business hours and just look at all these really cool famous Grand Prix cars, some of them that have won. I wonder how they came into inheriting these cars in this museum starting. Yeah, I don't know. I think they have a website, but I'm not going to dig into that. But sure. uh, but yeah, look them up. The Simeon Foundation Automotive Museum in South Philly. It's great. Something to do on the weekend. Right. My point here is that, yes, as you mentioned, there's some pedigree involved in how you get involved in this sport. And good old Randy Lanier did not 
do well. Randy was a little too salty. Yeah, he he was not well. He was mostly just not okay with being ordered around and told what to do, sure. and you know having to play that game. So he decided to start his own club. He was like, "I'm going to race. I'm going to have two cars, and I'm going to do this on my own." The first rule about race club, <laughs> <laughs> right? Don't talk about race. Don't club. talk about race club. As I mentioned, this is not a sport for people who don't have money. So. He had to afford two cars. That's that's not cheap. Two good cars. So we're talking a fast nope. engine, you know, it could be a Ford. He had to make relationships with a car manufacturer to manufacture a Grand Prix race car. I was going to say, like, he's got to have a good mechanic yeah, at the ready. Yep. He's got to hire good staff. He's got to hire, you know, be ready. If he's driving one car, he needs a driver for the other car. And we're talking about 1973 or four. So early seventies. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I need money. The best way to do that at the time is can break imagine, a horse's leg. Nope. Was actually drugs. Well, that would have been my next guess. <laughs> right. Because, I mean, that's what you did when you were in the 70s, yep. right? And the drug of choice in the 70s? Cocaine. No. <laughs> Marijuana. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's right. I'm sorry. 80s. I got. Uh, right, I got right. You're, yes, you were confused. <laughs> it was marijuana. And that comes from, at the time, Colombia. Yep. And if you can move enough of it, you can really make, you know, a couple million dollars a pop each time you do was it. Was he in with Escobar? I mean, I don't know. They never actually said who he was in with, but it was coming from Colombia. Yeah. So uh, this guy was in Florida, right? That's where he's based out of. And it was real easy for him to take a, a boat to Colombia, load it up and just come on back in and bring it in with him. Take a boat. Yeah, because this was pre the war on drugs. Yeah. So people aren't really looking at recreational Florida, especially if you're coming into right. a dock where like wealthy people park their boats. How and... long of a trip is that on a boat? Not too long. We're talking about Colombia. It's just right across the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. You're just... <laughs> Going over. And and in most cases, they said they didn't even have to make the trip the whole way. There'd be a boat from Colombia that would meet them in the middle and they would How just convenient is that pass it off and come on back. And yeah, there have was cake and eat it too. You know, also, you know, you do have to come back through customs, right? Getting back into to the waters. And if you get stopped by a customs boat, which doesn't happen all the time, by the way, it's only some, you know, as long as you don't have it out on your deck or whatever, like they're just going to look and you're going to be like, I was just on a recreational fishing trip. Like, right. The cooler. It's just got fish and ice in there. Right. It's, you know, their ways. So that was really small potatoes. But now he needed mechanics and he needed staff and he needed all the things that go with it and the money to enter these competitions and the money to travel to these Grand Prix competitions. So is that when he moved up to cocaine? Or... No. Okay. <laughs> Still talking about weed. Okay. <laughs> Marijuana. But what he did do was he bought himself a shipping container ship. So a ship, like a full, like a barge, I oh, guess that's gosh. A call, where you can put shipping containers on. So, so, so you said he invested in a barge? Yes. So it's kind of funny, right? Because now he's spending money to make more money to... Correct. Okay. I'm thinking, because like a barge, wouldn't that cost more than investing in a vehicle? Correct. But think on this. How much weed can you get on a barge? Forests. Right. 
Exactly. So he stood to make millions and millions of dollars. So it sounds like he's like slowly moving out of the race car industry into. No, this is solely to support his race car. That's insane. Like business. Right. Well, what's insane is that when you switch from having a little fishing boat going back and forth in the Gulf. Then it becomes a little more suspect, like, you know. Correct. You are going to have to go through customs. Yeah. You can't bring a shipping barge into Florida waters without passing customs. And if you have containers on it that are other products, which he did, I mean, that's you lease it out to do that. They still have to look at them. You have to say what they are. If you get caught with several of those containers being full of marijuana, you're definitely going to jail. Uh, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's going to be bad. So you got to figure out a way to get it in a lot of it in on a ship without it being noticed. Here's how they did it. Shipping barges have a ballast system, right? Where they put water in the bottom to keep the boat afloat. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you cut that ballast system in half, make a chamber under the ballast system, you can fill the entire length of the barge with drugs and then put the water on top of that. And your ballast system is still intact. And now when they open the, the, you know, the door to the ballast system, they just see water. They just see water. And you can fit that much on a barge. Now we're talking millions and millions of dollars yeah. worth of green coming into the country. Yeah. It was, it was really a, a very detailed enterprise but what amused me the most was the lengths at which he had to go not only to get in past customs, but then to unload it. Because how do you unload that without suspicion? How do you fly under the radar enough? Because now we're not we're not flying under the radar anymore. We are pretty much waving at the radar. Not to mention he's taking a chance. He's got a family. He's got a wife. He's got kids. It's a whole thing. But his persona is this great race car driver. And meanwhile, while all this is happening, yeah, he's doing real great. He's winning races, which as we all know, when you start hitting success, what happens? You want to, more of it. Yeah. And what happens to criminals when they start becoming successful? They get sloppy. Right. Well, yeah. They, they get arrogant. Too. They get like, oh, I got this. This is fine. Right. A little too, a little too confident. Then the 1980s start. <laughs> and then the cocaine. No, <laughs> he had nothing to do with cocaine. It was all just a plant. He was into marijuana. That was it. Okay. Let go of cocaine. <laughs> 1980s, though, did start the war on drugs. That was the just say no. That was the, yep. the first lady's big thing. Ronald Reagan put a lot more policies in place. Oh, I remember. For, you know, the DEA. It's when the television show Cops became popular. Yep, yeah, no, it was a big deal. So now it's much harder because now people are paying attention. And this guy is like the major supplier for like the entire East Coast. Most of the marijuana coming into the United States being disseminated on the East Coast, not even the East Coast, the eastern part of the United States, like east of the Mississippi, was coming from this guy and his dealings that also funded his race car career. And yeah, he got he got careless. The feds definitely tapped his phones and he definitely went down for it and was sentenced to life in prison because one of Ronald Reagan's policies at the time was if you were caught trafficking drugs into the United States, that was it. It was a life sentence. There's no opportunity for parole, no nothing. That You were going to live the rest of your life in prison. And he was, his second child had just been born. So he was in his like mid thirties when he went to prison. Mm. And of course it ended his career. Uh, and he had just switched from Grand Prix racing to Indy racing, which he wasn't nearly as good at, but he was a well-known Grand Prix racer. It was a big deal in the racing industry. After spending like 27 years in prison, Obama actually pardoned him. 
And so he is out of prison now. Uh, and he remarried his wife who had divorced him when all of this happened and mm. went to prison. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell us what you think about that. Um, you can message us on Facebook or Instagram. We're at what do you know about that? Or you can email us at what do you know? G town at gmail.com. And all one word. Yes. Let us know what you think. You're listening to 92.9 FM G town radio. Now it's time for us to move into our segment that we aptly call uh, Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood? And today joining us is our good friend, Clay Styles. Welcome, Clay. Welcome. Hey, how's it going, guys? Thank you guys very much for having me. I've never been a part of a radio show or podcast ever yet, so this is my first time. Oh. Yeah. So well, thank you. It's awesome to be here. How about you start by telling us a little something about yourself? Uh, who are you? Where are you from? How long have you been making music? My name is Clay Styles. originally from South Jersey. My wife, Rebecca, and I moved to Philadelphia around 2013, living in South Philly. And uh, we just last year moved up to the Maniunk area, and we love it. Music-wise, I've been doing so, so many things for a long, long time. I mean, music for me started back in grade school, like a lot of people probably they came to our elementary school classroom and they're like, Hey, we're going to have band, you know, if you want to be in the band, here's what you need to do. And I was like, yeah, I want to be in the band. (laughs) They listed all the instruments and I was like saxophone for sure. So did that. And then just the first time that they, they got everyone together and had everyone start to read notation and, you know, kind of did the whole, first thing with everybody got all the saxes together play play a b you know and then everyone would go down the line and play this wicked b that so you started on sax is that why you're a bass player now uh (laughs) (laughs) no i mean it's funny because that was the saxophone was the coolest one that was offered to me at that time Right. I mean, uh, like elementary school, it's not like electric guitar is an option. Yeah. And that was, I mean, I don't know what schools are doing now. Um, Eventually, uh, when I was in college, I ended up being a music education major and doing a lot of uh, when I did my student teaching, then guitars were available for like middle school and high school. But, you know, dating myself, this was like probably 95 and <laughs> when I was in elementary school. So they didn't have that. It was it was all like the classical regimented stuff, trumpet, trombone, clarinet, no drum set, snare drum. You know, you could be a percussionist, but like out of all of them, the saxophone was like, yeah. Right. Okay. okay so then fast forward a little bit for me. You Yeah, how do you jump to bass player from there? Just listening to music uh, in the household, it was a lot of different things. Parents was like Beatles, Chicago, Motown. Mm-hmm. So I got a good fill of everything. But when I got into middle school and high school, I, you know, again, using the dates as the... <laughs> as <laughs> right, the you're like, I don't want to listen to that stuff anymore. Yeah, like, cool, but the generation for me was like 97 so 97 obviously was a crazy year for music in all genres but just based on where i was in south jersey and what my friends liked and what i liked too it was all about that alt rock ska punk stuff. (laughs) so that's what 
I think like the person at the time was Tony Canal from No Doubt. Like when I saw No Doubt on MTV, I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, that guy looks cool. <laughs> and at the time, I didn't even think that I knew the differences between the bass and the regular guitar. But then, you know, doing research, I was like, oh, yeah, that guy. For some reason, his energy and their music was like, I think that I could play bass. And then in high school, I ended up meeting this guy, Mike, who I ended up being in my first band with, which was, of course, a ska band at that time. (laughs) Of course it was. Yeah. That whole dynamic of like going to school, seeing your friends in school and being like band practice after. And my house was the band practice house. I had the drum set and I had the bass amp. So everyone just brought their stuff to my house. My parents were totally cool with that. It was, you know, this type of thing tends to happen, I guess. Like you hear a lot of people who are like, oh, yeah, you know, keeps the kids out of trouble. (laughs) And like my parents were like, totally, I know where my kid is at all times. And my brothers and sisters did the same thing. They would dabble into music and stuff. And it was just like, no, we can have rehearsal in the basement. That's totally cool. That's how I got hooked on being in a band with your friends kind of thing in high school. And, you know, we made a CD, but at that time it wasn't digital. So we had all the tunes and we had to go to, you know, had to go to Guitar Center, get an actual quantity reel tape, bring it to the studio. And wow, yeah, it was right on the cusp. That was probably 1999 um, where it was available to do digital, but the studio that we were doing it in wasn't available. So, yeah, we had to do it have it rehearsed, have it produced. And I think we tracked a 10 song album. We tracked nine out of 10 tracks, like in one day, just in a whole like five down and dirty, like (laughs) session. And then I think we cut horns later, but all the rhythm tracks were definitely. So you still have this in your possession, right? Uh, Yeah. Do I get a copy of this? I can definitely like (laughs) show you, you know, it's, it still exists. Okay. So then you went to school for music, right? In the early stages of high school, like I was really athletic. I was playing soccer and and doing a lot of sports, but I wanted to do creative stuff. Eventually, I just started doing theater Mm -hmm. and I ended up doing marching band. So I'm telling you, like I've done all the bands. (laughs) So (laughs) I did marching band and it's funny because I didn't play. I did play. I was in the pit and I got to play because I knew that they allowed me to play bass in the marching band. So that was like what oh, sold me. That's cool. So I was like, oh, I can just be on the sideline and I don't have to march and I can just play bass. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So mm-hmm. did that. And then when it came to college time, I was like theater or music. And then it just ended up that um, the auditions for music went really well. And I ended up getting into Elizabethtown College um, in their music department program. So then you started playing, though, okay, you you got your degree in music. At some point, you come to Philly, and then you start playing out. Yeah, I graduated, and an old buddy of mine, Tom, whom you know, Tom Leslie. Leslie, So I went to high school with Tom Leslie, and Tom, for the brief period of time, was in that ska band, too, that I mentioned earlier, (laughs) for like the second half. We got all weird. We put a synthesizer in there, and, you know, it went all... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it got... Reggae synthesizers. Yeah. Well, yeah, it turned into like this other thing because uh, some folks... Sounds like, I mean, that could actually be a band name, Reggae Synthesizer. Reggae Synthesizer. (laughs) It works. So, yeah, Tom, uh, he had called me and said, hey, I'm playing with this guitar player, 
and the sax player as a trio you should come out and see it i went and uh i loved the way tom played drums he's a big reggae head but this was like some jazz fusion stuff i saw them at this cafe show and i was like oh this is really good sax player was really good guitar player was really really good and it just seemed to jive and i was like but they don't have a bass player yeah so after you know they finish and i just go up to them like awesome job guys this is really cool tom it was good to see you and he was like yeah why don't you come over because they him and the guitar player were living together and they would just jam out whenever they could and they were like yeah just come over and jam that was pretty much my second big band uh lp styles that's how that worked it started as a trio um us kind of just jamming at the the apartment complex over there at Beau Rivage and uh the sax player uh Jared we um Jared Jackson yeah tenor sax player he eventually he played a couple gigs with us and but really the writing was like us three and that's how that kind of came about and we were instant like the very first time I played with them it was just we were all free and we jammed for like seven hours so Tell us what what you do now musically. What do you, what are you doing now? After doing a lot of things with that band and uh, kind of being the backup band for a lot of different artists and stuff like that, there came a time that uh, I had heard about the national the Army National Guard band, and I was like, "What is that about?" So I ended up doing some research and. The way that the National Guard works, each state has their own band. Um, I go to the audition, I audition, I make it in, and then, cool, success, made it in. And then they're like, well, now you have to like go do everything. So I had to go to basic training. I like to classify it as the most interesting and f- sort of fun thing that I would never want to do ever again. Yeah. <laughs> um, before I did go, I was playing every maybe like four or five times a week with different bands singer songwriters funk bands hip-hop and i kind of like said hey i'm gonna go do this now and everyone was like cool like let us know when you get back good luck <laughs> and you know when that was all said and done uh hooked up with some some guys uh you know played a couple of gigs um including you <laughs> <laughs> right right so that was kind that's kind of where we are now musically before i had initially met you i was just like went into my head and i was like i'm just gonna make an album kind of like like you oh nice i want to make something that sounds like a garage band in the 60s or the late 50s okay i like did everything i I made up a band name they're called the dry wellers and i just put it (laughs) i just made it i recorded it at at my apartment and then you know went to the studio to do vocals i did everything for it wow so it's just this weird project that i kind of i have lots of different projects i do love to compose game music and stuff like that but i just have these buckets of things because i need to get it out and just do so i like created something so then what's the track that you're going to play for us uh we'll play a song called sirens Okay, here's Sirens by the Drywellers, a.k.a. Mr. Clay Styles.
Thanks again for stopping by and gracing us with your presence. Having had the experience of playing with you, um, I would say that you you were probably one of the more well-organized, focused <laughs> musicians I've ever worked with. So Thanks, thank man. you for that. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks. Well, Clay Styles, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming. Thanks by. for having me on.